We're rolling. Alright, we got a tornado siren in the background. I feel like that's appropriate. Damn, that's what it's like where y'all are from? Yeah. Y'all got tornado sirens? Yeah, they have to do a test every Saturday to make sure that they work. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they work. We can hear. <laughs> I hear. What, yeah. what if it's a Saturday where a tornado actually comes through? Then Yo. everybody's just gonna die, I guess. Yeah. Have you have you been through a situation with a tornado of any type? Like many. A real one? Many, many, many. Damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So growing up, I lived in Kentucky and Oklahoma, and so we would get tornadoes all the time. And there was one. It's kind of a long story. But basically, at one point, I was driving from Tulsa to Oklahoma City, and there was a tornado uh, coming, but I was, like, tweaked out. I didn't care. So I realized that I was the only person driving on the road. And we get to this toll booth, and every single stall is taken up by a semi-truck, and there's kind of nowhere to go. So I jump out of the car. Wind's going everywhere. I try to get into the little hut where the toll takers have taken shelter. And they didn't open that shit up. They basically said, good luck. And so I just kind of got back in my car and I watched the tornado in the distance just kind of do its thing. Not super huge, but uh, definitely a life-changing experience for sure. That's got to be crazy to look at. It is. Man, see, Kelby got hurricanes. You got tornadoes. That's right. Man. That's right. I'm in Baltimore, so we just got like 302 murders, which like set a record. <laughs> but that's it. But and we got really yeah. good blue crabs, and that's it. <laughs> you can control murders a little bit more than like hurricanes and stuff. It's true. That that's that's true. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to get murdered unless you you know. I shouldn't say this because it's insensitive to people, innocent victims, but it's hard to get murdered in this city unless you're up to no good, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you gotta be doing some fuck shit. Yeah, I've seen The Wire, which I think is a, yeah, an accurate you, documentary, right, of, of your city? You wanna, <laughs> you wanna know something hilarious about that? What's that? So, um, people in, from Baltimore, like born and raised in the city, really don't like that like the city always gets associated with the wire but you want to know something hmm. my wife is actually from do you you saw the wire so you remember uh lexington terrace you remember the building and then the pit mm -hmm. and all that yeah. my wife grew up in the pit and oh, then shit. moved out to the county later on and um it's funny because it is just like the show it is just <laughs> i mean you know it is what it is so you know, I think it did a great job showing Baltimore, especially when it went to the, you know, the Greeks in the second season and all the different things that go on in the city. But yeah, yeah, I'd say it's kind of accurate. It's gotten gotten a little better. It's good, man. Hey, that's actually a good segue. So I'm going to talk about Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer today. This is our guest, David Simmons. What's up, dude? Like, what? give us a give us your background. Okay. Tell us about yourself. So, yeah, um, so I spent, I spent most of my, you know, Teen years or so in um in the system mm -hmm. and um when i came out i was rapping i was rapping and producing and um worked with rappers in dc and baltimore did stuff like that for a while and then um i got into writing as like it's just there's too much stuff happens where i'm from and i just feel like i have to share it and i had i had so i put it down and i started writing it and just randomly you know, about a year and a half ago, 
I sent out a story that I wrote to uh, a couple, you know, of these places. Uh, and I expected to get, like, rejected because, you know, it was my first time, like, sending it out. But I fucked up because, like, all three responded and they wanted it, right? So I made my first mistake with writing. But, you know, you're not supposed to simultaneous submissions and all nah, that you can do you that shit. no no that's that's like it's okay no yeah anybody who says that it's not is just being precious do whatever you want yeah well they te- they treated me like a rapper that was rapping off youtube beats <laughs> that's what they treated me like but you feel me yeah so uh-huh. so i know y'all mess with local musicians and shit so i, I know y'all know what i'm talking about but like uh-huh. Uh-huh. that shit's okay too <laughs> so yeah that's what i'm saying it's damn right it's okay <laughs> if, it, if people like it that's what matters so you know so I wrote a story about um, about a, a heroin dealer um, I know that um, that only accepts weird things in exchange for dope. Like when he don't want, it's weird, but it's it's real. And um, it, it's a, a story about you know a dope dealer that um, that only accepts exotic cheese in exchange for his dope. <laughs> so to deal with him, you gotta like rob the cheese section of Whole Foods and steal like six year old Balderson age cheddar and shit like. You don't fuck around, so I submit this ridiculous story, right? <laughs> and and it it pops off, and um, since then I've just been writing things that happen, and I send them out, and um, the way that so that's what I've been doing now, and I'm and I'm working on a book that I should hopefully have out next year. I want to find the right publisher. I don't want to self-publish, and um, that's what I'm working on now. And in the meantime, I'm just selling short stories here and there, um. And it's fun. And uh, one thing about writing that I like is, like, I'm a new father. And my daughter is about to be six months in December on Christmas. And, bro, I can't be out here trapping with the rappers and shit like that. I'm, I'm getting too old for that shit. So, like, writing, writing allowed me to, like, express what I've been through and what I experienced and the people around me um, without having to be on stage, you know, spending tons of money on bottles and doing shit like that you know so so yeah but let me tell you how i found out about y'all right because uh the internet's fucking crazy right Mm -hmm. so i'm a fan in of jeremy robert johnson and we, we follow each other on social media and i don't i don't know what it was but i think he retweeted something kelby said and i looked at his shit and I saw his books surrounded by choppers, right? <laughs> I saw his books yeah. with all these fucking choppers around it and I was like, whoa, hold on a minute. Did I just find my tribe? What the fuck is this, <laughs> right? And I'm like, why he got choppers around his books? I was like, that's fucking gangster because you know, yeah, you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to do my book promo cooking fucking crack in the background. Like, you know, I feel that with gut, like <laughs> that's <yeah>. real shit. <laughs> and, and I saw that shit and I was like, whoa. So I started reading his stuff of like, yo, he's writing about people that I hang out with. Like, I, I know these people. Like, like, he got a book, you know, Hurricane Season, which I, I've almost finished. I know Marcel. His name ain't Marcel where I'm from. His name's Chauncey. But I know Marcel. You feel me? Mm-hmm. Like, similar, similar people. And then I saw him tweet you. And I was like, Why, who's J. David Osborne? Why does that name sound so familiar? And I'm like, holy shit! That's the writer of one of my one of my favorite short story collections, um, "Our Blood, Our Blood in Its Blind Circuit." And that's how I found out about y'all, cause I feel what y'all write. Like, you had that story about the cartel police, yeah. But it had um like a supernatural element to it, mm-hmm. and I was like, I was like, oh shit, you can do that. 
you can write about doping bitches and trapping and hustling and, and add a fucking werewolf in there if you want to. It's all good. Yep. You can do it. Yep. And um, it was very inspiring for me to read y'all work because I felt like, oh, I'm not, I'm not the only one who sees that this can be done and there are other people who enjoy this. So, yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. And, th- and that's me. And I'm, my pleasure. And that's me. And coming out of Baltimore and um, big fan of y'all podcast and these crazy movies y'all be watching. Yeah. Well, the thing about books, you bring up an important point. You know, so you can write a book about drug dealers, cops, whatever, and add a werewolf into it. The great thing about writing books is that there's no budget. You don't have anybody telling you that, hey, we can't afford to do this. So you got to do something else. And I am eternally mystified that people choose to write books where there are no werewolves, where no weird shit happens. <laughs> right. Because yeah. right. your imagination is the limit of what you can put on there. And uh, I think that people play it safe. But, hey, man, that's that's definitely appreciated. Kelby, you got, were you trying to say something? Sorry, man. Oh, no, I was just going to say the same thing. Like, I fuck with it. And, uh... Yeah, I just started checking out your shit too, and uh, like Sugarfoot was awesome. Uh, Thank you. And it has that element of I I kind of feel like anybody can write. Like I don't give a fuck what people do. Do what you like. But for me personally, if you ain't living, I don't want to be reading your shit. Like, bro, yo, that is why I fuck with y'all, yo. That's what I'm talking about. See, the thing is, it's all in the dialogue. I'm a I'm gonna bring up hurricane season again. I know by the way y'all you write in the dialogue that the people you're around talk like that. It doesn't sound like an author trying to, oh, let me write about this demographic that I don't know nothing about. Right. And it's the same thing when I was reading the cartel story. I mean, that Santeria research, you must have, I mean, that was, I think that was Santeria, right? Yeah, so, yeah, San, Santeria, yeah, basically just, yeah, Mexican magic, yeah. Right, and and your research towards it was like, I, I I was just it was very it was like this guy knows what he's writing about and Kelby I feel you bro because I feel the same way about rappers bro don't be fucking rapping about the streets and you hustling and you just been a junkie you ain't, you ain't never you know what I'm saying like if you if that's what you are rap about that you know and I feel the same way about writing I really do I really do I don't want to gatekeep authors but I feel you yeah people get on my ass when I say shit like that but I mean you can do it I'm just not gonna fuck with it you know. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. right, and it's better though when it comes from experience. I think I just there's an authenticity to the writing that you can just get so much more immersed in it. You know, everybody's minds work differently, and I think it's a mixture of nature and nurture. But if your nurture is such that you grew up along this very similar path that other people did. I think it can stunt your ability to utilize your imagination. And I think that a lot of writers these days are really into, how do I put this? Uh, they're into pretty basic shit, you know? I mean, and so it's just kind of recycling the same thing. But, you know, I don't want to, I'm at the point right now, dude, creative wise, where <clears throat> I'm, I'm writing and I'm feeling good about it. So my like, my ability to be a hater has uh, has diminished significantly because you can't really be a hater if you're doing your own. Th- you know what I mean? Like being a hater comes yeah. when when you're when you're not doing. So like, and I'm not saying y'all are that way. I'm saying that like my natural state is to sure. hate on uh, 
normies, I guess might be a word for it. But like at this point, I'm just like, hey, you know what? It's a big ocean and we're all different fish doing different things. But like Kelby said, I personally just don't fuck with it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. We're just in a place yeah. where we're fucking with shit a lot more. Like we met David and, you know, yeah. and then the other David and we're all we're all firing on on all cylinders it's so, so it's, it's, like, it's so good to meet someone like david too i'm not talking about you like you're not here but like it, you know it's no, I appreciate it's uh it's just it's good because you know you do feel a little lonely out here sometimes because right. kelby and i named this podcast agitator because it's a Miike movie but also because we get on we get on the writing community's nerves oh, a lot oh. uh because <laughs> we just we just kind of i don't know it's like oil and water sometimes but uh, it is good to meet people who are just like on that same wavelength. I feel the same way. It's um, it was exciting for me to find writing. It was like, it was I don't know. It was like when you find out there's a sequel to a movie you really like, yeah. and you're like, oh, more material or another season. And it's like, oh, I, yes, there's more of this world to experience. And me, I love reading about other places and finding the similarities and differences and you know like Kelby writing about Texas and everything it's really interesting just to hear the differences but also the similarities you know yeah absolutely things like that what is what's going on with whole time what what is that man look right all right so (laughs) in um in DC and Baltimore mostly I would say DC there's a colloquialism or or that we use uh, whole time and it's really just a placeholder right so we might be like whole time I really you know appreciate coming on this podcast whole time that movie was really crazy so you use it as like a a placeholder right okay and um I you know I didn't invent it but I made that shit popular out (laughs) here man at least I feel like that you know what I mean I'm like you know I feel like give me my flowers for that or whatever but and now a lot of people say it, and, and I didn't invent it, like I said, but it's just a thing that I say a lot, and people recognize me by that. And um, I wrote a story that's coming out in an anthology called Whole Time, mm-hmm. and um, to tie that all in, because, you know, trying to promote that when it comes out next year. So Nice. All right. That's what that is. You're a colloquialism, baby. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. Now, I'm very interested in the etymology of words and where they come from. And I thought whole time was very interesting because it uh, conceives of time as a as a whole, as a thing, right? Not just uh, right. this kind of river that we're in, but it makes me think of uh, some kind of sphere of time, right? That you can just encapsulate all of it. Like you're taking a snapshot or something, you know, of a... That's fucking beautiful, bro. That's beautiful. I like. I'm gonna steal that if you're cool with that, yeah, man. Steal it. That, yeah, yeah. That was great, we steal man. Because it it's true. Because I love that shit. Because it's it's whole time. It's saying whole time. I mean everything I'm about to say all the time right. in all entirety of time as it could exist. So yeah, I like that shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. That's like what people <laughs> actually mean when they say low key. Because like people say low right. key around here all the time, and it's like. But actually, that's not low key. That's like some real heavy shit. Which <laughs> exactly. I kind of, I kind of love it, but it doesn't make sense. You know, it's like anti what it's actually saying. Low key is just a beautiful word. I don't know. If it's well, it's yeah. also, and it also is a uh, Loki, like the Norse god of chaos, right? So I, I like when people say that because it's supposed to mean like 
low key is uh, you know like I low key like this thing. I like it, but I'm I'm right. not I'm not like uh, you may not expect that or what have you. Right. But I always think of it as Loki, as like an invocation of a Norse god before you talk. Right. I'm about to say some shit that's chaotic, <laughs> that throws things into uh, disarray. Oklahoma has all kinds of. We say "bless your heart" a lot, which actually means which actually means "fuck you." It's just basically saying you're you're just you're so precious, sweet summer child. You just said something retarded, but you know. But we love you anyway. Uh, what about you? what about you, Kelby? Uh, I don't know. We steal a lot from all over the uh, the South, so like it's hard to to pin down what originated from where like retarded is big like retarded is a good word in a lot of ways right like uh man i'm retarded or that shit got me retarded yeah or uh trill might be the only trill yeah like, trill's like, a big Houstonism. yeah keep it true yeah that's a houstonism for sure nobody else knows what that means yeah well, i do because i like ugk and Oh, throwed. Speaking of UGK, like if you throwed, then a motherfucker, you know. Right. right. You're not just you're not just fucked up. You're you're throwed. <laughs> Is your son beating your ass? Is your son beating your ass, Kelby? Always. He's a bully. <laughs> he's he's throwing sand at me. <laughs> Rowan is our fourth mic on this show. He, uh, he, he's a wild man. I'm thinking that Gus is going to become a wild man too, though. He's He's got crazy energy. Has your daughter got crazy energy, David? Bruh, oh my goodness. How old are y'all kids? My, my son is eight months. Okay. Yeah, Rowan's two and a half. Okay. I'm at, I'm at almost six months right now. She does have a lot of energy. She's a happy baby, though. She smiles, like, all the time and laughs a lot. It's pretty fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I saw y'all's uh, picture in the tracksuits, the family pic. That was adorable. Oh, yeah. I know. I was jealous Yo, of that shit. You, that is that is something that I've been meaning to do, and I was like, this motherfucker did it, and it looks amazing. Yeah. Yep. That's my wife, bro. That that's all my wife. She she sets all that all that stuff up, man. She uh she took us to the jeweler for uh, Christmas and got us new fronts. Right. I, I saw that Old too. That was so shit. tight. Y'all were Yo, getting y'all were getting girls together. That was cool. Yeah, we wanted. We would get my daughter a grill, but she ain't got no teeth yet. <laughs> she just started teething, so we got her a little bracelet joint. You know what I mean? That would be cool like, if they yeah, made like yo, a, a pacifier with a grill that comes out, right? So it always looks like hey, she's... Hey, young. Yeah, that would be great. That's dude. what we got to do, man. The grill pacifier. <laughs> For the babies. Yeah. Because agitator love the kids, right? That's right. Absolutely. How has fatherhood changed you? Yo, it's crazy. Like, I'm... Um, you know what? Just just speaking completely from the heart, I used to measure like um, my plans and um, like days differently. Like I wouldn't like make in my mind it was hard to see anything past maybe a few days. But I'm not saying I lived every day like it was my last or anything like that. I mean I've chilled out in the past couple of years. But what I'm trying to say is that now I can make plans like. 
I can be like, oh, next summer we're going to take my daughter to Jamaica, so we got to get her passport photos. Right. Whereas, like, a couple years ago, I'd be like, passport photos for <laughs> six months from now? Six months from now? Who knows where we're going to be, yeah. you know? And yeah. now I feel like time, like, has changed. It's become a... A thing I can measure differently, you know. You know, because I know I gotta be alive for a while. You manifested. You manifested whole time. Get see what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you manifested That's whole tight. time. But no, yeah, the 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 perception of time with a kid, like you said, is different. And also, I mean, I used to drink a lot. Like I'm sober now, but I used to drink a lot and do uh, like whatever speed pills I could get. I was big into speed, and then uh, you know started cleaning up. But it was a, you know, getting getting clean like that is a long process of quitting and starting and stopping and two steps forward, one step back, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, as soon as I found out that my wife was pregnant, I just, like, dropped it all, you know? I was like... Right? It's this, crazy, this, right? Because, and I love it, dude. I love the, uh, the fact. Because, like, when, when all I have to care about is myself... I don't like myself that much. Well, I didn't, I would, I should say. I didn't like myself that much, so I didn't really care. You know what I mean? But, like, I like this kid a lot. I love him. So, all of a sudden, there's a purpose to doing things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I want to get this podcast to work, and I want to get my writing out there, and, you know, I want to make money and all this kind of shit that I literally have not cared about for 34 years of my life because, uh, all because of this little midget dude this little guy like he just you know he smiles at me and i'm like oh yeah you're gonna live in a big house buddy we're we're, we're right we're doing this right i was thinking just the other night because he had me worn out and we didn't go to bed till like the middle of the night and uh i was like man why didn't i start working harder when like before he came around and it was because of that like i didn't care it you know, I wasn't thinking about five years from now, what do I want him to be doing? What do I want his like upbringing to be like? So I wasn't, I didn't have as much to work for. Mm -hmm. I was just chilling. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it, it's a, a life changing thing that you can't really know till, till it happens. Like I've never had the type of empathy for in general that I, I have now like when my daughter has a stuffed nose or she you know it makes me feel something for another living person I haven't you know I'm not saying I'm that cold cold I'm just saying but it's different it's different right you know right. like I feel it like it's me you feel me mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that that's just different I'm I'm scared for the first time she breaks her first bone or gets in her first fight because I got to scrapping at an early age, and you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want nothing to happen to her, you know. Yeah, I get that, man. Yeah, I get that. I, I've been trying so hard to just kind of let him be a baby, and you know, put things in his mouth and touch gross, grimy shit, dirt that he's not supposed to, because I just want to protect him. But it's like, no, that's how he builds his immune system. He's got to, you know chew on the thing that just fell on the ground you know what i mean so it's a it's a balance i think it's just a balance of like that hyper empathy that you're talking about and then also just being like okay he's gotta he's gotta be ready because the world is not easy it's easier than it used to be but it's not easy i think that's exactly what this movie is about 
to me it was like this is about the anxieties of parenthood speak on that that's an interesting take so like there's a couple of different ways there's the like there's the what kind of child am i raising kind of fear like with the father towards the end where uh he's training his kids to become these like wear machines basically like instead of a werewolf they're like people that turn into guns and shit and then there's the dude that you know they kidnapped to experiment on he's afraid of you know being able to care for his family and then you know he can't uh he can't save his child and uh yeah so the whole thing like had a very that was at least a heavy theme of it um that was the biggest takeaway for me was like damn i feel this as a as a father i feel this movie like this is how i feel about raising a kid i didn't even think about that part with the kid but that's absolutely correct i mean that that childhood and, and parenthood i mean with the kid that's a huge part of it looking back at it i want to say that first of all the whole um the whole movie uh sounded and looked like a nine inch nails music video circa like pretty hate machine yep. era yep. um yeah and i loved that fun i thought that was fantastic fun fact trent reznor saw tetsuo 2 and tried to get Tsukamoto to direct the video for Broken, uh, and it just Ooh. it just didn't work out. But he, uh, Tsukamoto, did end up uh, directing a commercial for MTV with Nine Inch Nails music in it. So that's a very astute observation. That's amazing, man. I have that's really cool to find out. Hey, that that makes sense to me. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh-huh. And I loved that because I, I always wished those you know, had like a whole and closer videos with like a whole movie, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yep. it was pretty cool. Yeah. That was the first yeah. thing I noticed. Especially, I took note of the music too, and uh, how it, it, it kind of sounds like um, when they're in the, when they're lifting weights and all that shit, it's like a, like an industrial version of like the Rocky Four music with the Russian bad guy training. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh shit. Yo, that that's that's yeah. <laughs> I thought that the guys who were all training cuz in the movie for the listeners, uh basically you can't do a whole ton of plot exposition on Tetsuo movies because they're very visual auditory experiences, but uh in the first film, it's about a guy who's being turned into uh a metal weapon by this uh, character named Yatsu who's uh, kind of the bad guy and uh, in Tetsuo 2 there's a bit of a bigger budget but the same two actors reprise their roles and uh, it's it is kind of about this this bad guy played by Tsukamoto the director who uh, wants to create an army of metal people so there are all these fantastic scenes of bald uh, uh, muscular shirtless dudes working out uh, like a lot of it a lot of it it kind of reminded me of um, what's the guy's name Mishima his book Sun and Steel he's one of those famous Japanese writers who oh yeah actually yeah. Uh, he ended up committing seppuku after trying to stage a coup in 19 uh, post World War II Japan right because he, he was all about uh, loyalty to the emperor and after World War II ended and the Japanese lost uh, he didn't like the direction things were going so he, he staged this coup 
with some uh, students from university and it didn't work out. And so then he, uh, I think he disemboweled himself, but he wrote this book called Sun and Steel because uh, he was a, you know, he's a writer, but he was also an actor, a model. He was very into aesthetics and his musculature and all this kind of stuff. But Sun and Steel is this great book uh, if you can kind of like get past the whole uh, like em- empire thing because I don't really fuck with that. But he, you know, he basically talks uh, for paragraphs and paragraphs about his, you know, rippling muscles and stuff. And I just kept thinking about that watching Tetsuo 2, you know, like it's also in Tokyo Fist, but Tsukamoto has this eye for the male physique that, uh, that kind of lingers. I mean, you see some titties in this movie too, so it's balanced, but this is a very heavily, uh, uh, male-centric, kind of homoerotic film, in my opinion. I'm I'm not a homo to <laughs> to call back <laughs> call back the last episode. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Hey yo, hey yo. I could see I could see that though. I could see that how how that could be. You know, I have a question though. Maybe y'all know the answer to this. Speaking about that scene with the um the guys with the shaved heads and the, and the lifting weights and stuff. Now, I I looked it up on Wikipedia after and looked it up on Reddit and just see what people were talking about this movie. And um, when you look on the Wikipedia, the way they refer to those guys is as skinheads, right? Uh-huh. And when you click the link to that, it goes to, you know, you know neo-Nazi skinheads and then, you know, the music skinheads that aren't neo like it goes down that whole american path and was that just a a a wikipedia mess up like like what skinheads there they have skinheads like or is it just guys with their head shaved like what i could you know what i'm saying yeah i see what you're saying i i think it could be skinheads actually because if you think of a skin so a neo-nazi right a fascist is somebody who is really into aesthetics uh, corporatism and uh, well like r- obviously racial purity and things like yeah, that nationalism nationalism <laughs> that kind of thing and I think that these guys fit the bill you know they got the aesthetics they got the corporate uh, as they got they got uh, the corporation type uh, you know they're all kind of regimented and in line and disciplined and you know everything's very metallic and sort of techno-fascist, right? So uh, they're not, they're obviously, they're not skins like we have in America who are kind of just like hillbillies with Confederate flags, right? <laughs> it's more like, uh, but I think the spirit is actually there. I'd call, yeah, I'd call them skinheads. Yeah, I get, yeah, because they, they have their idea of what their perfect image of a man is and they want to be all changed today, you know? So they're, they're all following that. That makes sense. That makes sense to uh, another one of the things that I was kind of wondering if what this movie was saying, if it had kind of like an environmentalist message, which you wouldn't think except for, like I was thinking about the film style and how it feels so claustrophobic Mm -hmm. and uh, it started making me feel bad. And then I was like thinking about that and I was like, maybe that's the point. So maybe like Tsukamoto's fascination with all of the like industrialism and everything isn't really coming from a place of admiration, but maybe like from a more negative place of like 
uh, anti-industrialization or something. And so if like it makes sense that the that like the fascistic bad guy characters would be, you know, they're the ones pushing all this machinery takeover and shit. Right. Right. I could see that. I think that Tsukamoto in his films uh, often critiques this sort of neoliberal uh, cybernetic capitalism is a, is a good term for it. I, would, I just read that in this book called by a tycoon called The Cybernetic Hypothesis. But uh, the idea of cybernetic capitalism is, you know, um, capitalism that is very administrative and where there's a bunch of rules and... Um, it's sort of described by this uh, Jorge Luis Borges story about a king who wants to make a map of his territory and the map starts to become so detailed that it becomes begins to become the territory itself right so basically what you end up with is everything that is administrated within an inch of its life you end up with giant empty personality-less skyscrapers which feature heavily in Tsukamoto films and you also on the cybernetic angle, you do end up with uh, man and machine hybrids, right? So I think that Tsukamoto is definitely a critic of this kind of... Uh, because think about it this way. At the end of Tetsuo, right? Tetsuo becomes this big ball of, of machinery, and he says, you know, our love can destroy the, the whole world, right? And at the end of Tetsuo 2, he's become this even bigger tank but now it's an amalgam of all these skinheads who've, who've been absorbed into him via this uh kind of you know cranial tube that he's shot out to all of them and the importantly the woman the female energy is riding right alongside him right so it represents this kind of synthesis of the two things that you're talking about kelby but that's kind of a ramble so sorry about that but uh it's uh i def i i think you're right I, I probably could have just said I, that I think you're right, and that would have worked. <laughs> no, no, that was, that was all great though. Yeah, yeah, I was I was listening. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Ro Rowan thought it was hilarious. You hear? <laughs> you know, um, Kelby, uh, Kelby said the movie was very claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. I felt that way too. I felt it was very dirty, a dirty feeling, claustrophobic, very like like a like rusted metal like you need a tetanus shot after it like it was just a, a dirty just i don't know it was it was to me it was just very also claustrophobic and just gritty and dirty yeah. whereas like some some other movies i've watched from y'all show like tokyo gore police or something like that it is not that way this is flashier and you know it's just a different vibe you know i felt sick at certain points when they do that um there's a point where there's this very frenetic montage of you know he's like he's naked and these wires are starting to go over his body and there's explosions but at a certain point they go down this colored tube like this psychedelic tube and it starts to spin and i at that point i actually was like i think i'm gonna be sick you know the the, the movie actually made me a little bit nauseous so i think that um it's it's interesting right because people watch movies to usually just to relax and kind of hang out and Tsukamoto seems to be like you're not just going to sit there and enjoy this right this is going to be an ordeal yeah that was one of my big um contemplations 
after it was a uh, because there was actually a part where I turned it off. Um, whenever, whenever he uh, accidentally kills his kid. Because I know which one I have. Oh, buddy. I was like, this is. I'll, uh, I'll help you out. I'm just on the phone right now, okay? But I'll be in there in, in just a few minutes, okay, buddy? <laughs> All right. Sorry, y'all. My my uh, nephew came over. No kids on the show. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's, that's true. Yo, when he killed the kid, yo, I hit David up about that. Yo, when he killed that kid, yo, why they make the kid blow up like that, <laughs> like into pieces? Yo, that joint blew up into pieces, yo. Like, I saw that. First of all, you know what actually is a, a nice touch that happens right before he changes and, and kills his own kid? I'm not sure why, but he, like, um, he spits like a little piece of what looks like either flesh or pink saliva out of the side of his mouth and it just like hangs over like as he's getting furious about um he's very angry about the whole situation and like this happens this like thing pops out of his mouth and then he blows up his kid and it just crumbles looks like like if you smashed a cake right like it just falls up the kid yeah. falls apart and um I was like, what the fuck? Like, I saw that, and I was like, oh, so that's what that's what we're getting into. Yeah, it's, okay. it's that kind of Because that was early. Yeah. <laughs> that was early in the movie. Yeah. Real early. Yeah, yeah. It kind of feels like Tetsuo 2 uh, has more of a movie to it than the first one. You've seen the first one, right, Dave? I have, I have. Okay, yeah. So, you know, the first one is an hour, but it is just nothing but this kind of crazy style that makes an appearance in Tetsuo 2, but it's buttressed on either side by actual an actual movie that's happening with something that kind of resembles a plot but they still after that opening with the chase in the in the mall in the record store uh they do they let you he reminds you that you're watching a sukumoto film and that is <laughs> that's kind of how he does it just the kids little hands that are still there just the just the hands right. <laughs> and I, right the hands just the hands yeah and i thought that I, but i thought that that was really interesting because as you find out later on in the film uh you know he he did that without any alterations whatsoever because their little injection that they're giving to people to turn them into cyborgs didn't actually hit him because it kind of hit his uh you know early 90s palm pilot instead of instead of actually injecting him so he through force of will he exploded his own child so there's a there's a lot of uh very strange oedipal stuff going on like kelby mentioned with the flashback at the end to to his father trying to teach them to become weapons uh him destroying his son and then this kind of psychedelic rebirth at the end where everything goes back to normal but the city has been completely destroyed you know, so it's it's a it's a trip. The movie's a trip. It really is, man. Oh. Back to that environmentalist shit at the end too. Like that was another thing where I thought, oh maybe, yeah, maybe I'm onto something thinking that because the city, it's like a happy ending and the city is in ruins. Right. And they're like, right. the family is back together again. Do y'all do y'all know the the concept of accelerationism? Have you guys heard of this before? Um, no, explain it to me. Okay, so accelerationism comes from a philosopher named Nick Land. It's largely a reactionary philosophy that uh, finds the current 
techno capital state that we're in to be very distasteful and they want to accelerate its end by accelerating capital itself right so what that means is uh so let's say you wanted to you're one of these people who want to go back to the land right you want to throw away your iphone go live in a cabin somewhere and fish and hunt and just just live traditionally for the for the rest of your life that's the opposite of what accelerationists would say which is that in order to actually destroy capitalism you have to speed it up you have to make it you have to make it happen even more right you have to live capitalistically and techno fetishistically as hard as you can because it'll burn itself out it'll all it'll all collapse right and the ending of Tetsuo 2 is sort of a I think it's sort of a um, a visual representation of that right because he absorbs those people they turn into this big rolling tank they accelerate the uh, human machine hybrid thing to an absurd endpoint and in doing so he's able to actually destroy the city and and live with his family again and it also feels much less claustrophobic at that part of the movie yep. as if like they've kind of he's opened up that very uh, constricting environment you know mm -hmm. that might be the city mm -hmm. that's interesting yeah yeah mm. You know, um, there was some, there was something I definitely wanted to point out that was wild to me about the movie, right? That like, cause it, the movie makes gives you a lot of anxiety as you're watching it, cause sure. it's a lot of bad stuff happening to this this guy, right? And um, I don't know if this was just the translation subtitles. I don't know if I mean I, but when I watched it, the scene where he's hanging off the building the first time <laughs> yeah right yeah i think it was the first time one of the skinhead dudes says something to him and the subtitles that popped up said and i, I screenshotted this because i was just like what the fuck and he said you bug me uh-huh now i understand that could be a translation type issue but maybe he said something more like you piss me off or i don't know or but but the point i'm saying is Yo, that's wild. You you throw a dude off a building and he's hanging there, and then you tell him he pisses you off. Right. Like that's crazy. <laughs> like like I I was like these are some fucking rough dudes, right? Like that's gangster. He's hanging off the building and you say you bug me, and I mean, God, I wish I knew what the um the actual line was. I can't imagine it's really that, right? Uh, probably not. Yeah, we, Kelby and I, yeah. on that last episode we did about Crow Zero, talked about the horrible translations that were in that particular movie. The translations here aren't bad, but they're very, like you said, they're very rudimentary, right? They, they're just kind of telling you the gist of what's being said. So I think you're right. I think that probably makes more sense in Japanese. But it is, it is kind of funny to, like... I guess it was bugging him that he wouldn't fall off the building, right? Like, right. He's like, he's like, you, you're annoying me that you won't just die, bro. There is that's gangster. There's no translation that doesn't make that like, it, like it's still the same. It, this context is still the same. It's still I'm I'm upset at you because you don't want to let go and just die, right? Like that's crazy. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, those are some rough guys, and then. And then that segues into 
my man's solution is going to the gym to lift weights. <laughs> like that's his solution. Man, if someone hung me off the building and told me that I bugged them and snatched my kid, bro, I'm not just gonna go to the gym and do like a lateral press or whatever the fuck he was doing, right? Like, I don't know what the fuck. Yo, right? Just turn on some, just that was put, put, some, put some like Limp biscuit in the headphones and just blow off some steam, you know? It's like, yeah, right. this guy threw me, threw me off, well, almost threw me off a building and uh, my kid exploded. So it's like, I need to do some right. squats. Um, Yo! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like that uh, that post-bully moment where the, the bullied kid snaps. He's like, enough of this. Except it's like, I just made you blow up your own kid. <laughs> so <Right>. it's like... <laughs> oh, man. You know, I, I didn't mind the translation, even if it was wrong. Because something about it's like... It's just the way it was said at that moment just made it ten times worse, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Also, you know, um, a scene that was really uh, intense that caught me off guard was like the uh, the gun fetish sex that the dad the dad was having yeah. with the mom and, and killed the mom. Yeah. Like, that was pretty heavy. I was into it. What do you guys think? I mean, that's my yeah. new thing now, man. That's, that's the only way I can get by. That's it. Hey, I already keep a gun on the bedside table. So, like, now I'm just, you know, <laughs> we get we get into it. I look over. I'm like, hmm, you know what? Let's try something. <laughs> I, watch, <laughs> I watch this movie, right? Yeah, they, they, the people who are worried about uh, movies influencing kids, it's like, no, you have to worry about 30-year-old men attempting to... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, oh man, and it makes me wonder too, like, I mean, would would we have seen a scene like that in like, in a, in a, in a Hollywood movie? I mean, I don't know, you got movies like Seven where the dude like, uh, fucks the prostitute with like, the knife thing on his dick, so I, you know, but I mean like, would we have something like, but they never show it, you know? Mm -hmm. So like, would we, would we ever have something that wild in American cinema? Uh... Not in that particular way, I would think. Probably because Tsukamoto, um, he, you know, so he's done films like Bullet Ballet and Snake of Snake of June is his erotic thriller, right? And the Japanese approach to eroticism and also gun fetishism is very different because guns are completely illegal in Japan. And I think, you know, there's such a there's such a part of American life. You know, last weekend I was out in the country, you know, firing an AR with with my family just for fun. You know, it's just kind of like what we do here. But I think that the gun uh, has such a, a mysticism around it in Japan because of its illicit nature that it gets tied up in sex. Right. And, all, you know, guns are very phallic. Right. I mean, they long tubes that shoot stuff you know um so i think i think that that particular thing wouldn't be seen in americans i mean especially not now dude i mean american cinema is just in the toilet at this point so uh, sure I, I'm, I'm talking a lot this episode to give short answers no i don't think <laughs> I, I don't <laughs> i don't think so and and that's that that's one thing i like not necessarily that i like that scene so much but that I got to watch a movie that showed me things presented in a way that I don't normally see them presented. Yeah. If that makes sense. And 
you know, that also, the, the point you made about guns being completely unavailable, you know, that also explains why your boy was weightlifting as right. a solution. Yeah, exactly, because right, he didn't have it, a gun to go get. He didn't. He couldn't just go. Exactly. He couldn't go grab the strap and handle business. He had to. He had to go. Exactly. He had to go do some deadlifts. You know. Um, That's stressful, man. That's stressful. Yeah. You got to worry about getting your kids snatched, and the only solution is to like do some presses and squats and. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> man, and Superman. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So this movie followed on the heels of. Uh, a few other movies that he had, he did a movie called Haruki the Goblin before this one, but he used the money from Haruki the Goblin to finance this project. But in classic Tsukamoto fashion, he went uh, way over budget and took way too long to make the movie. So he spent three hundred thousand, and then he went to uh, actually a bunch of different companies looking for financing, and everybody said no, except for a little record company. They gave him seven hundred grand in exchange. They said they what they wanted was for them to have exclusive rights to every movie that he made from then on. So like they would be his sole financier, and he would make movies for them. And he said no. Uh, this is what I love about Tsukamoto, is that he's, he's a very, from the stories I've read from him, he's a very difficult person to work with. And he's just, he's very, he doesn't budge, and he does what he wants. And if, if you don't like that, then too bad, right? Um, which was actually good because that record company ended up going out of business, so he would have been screwed in that respect. <laughs> which is a writing lesson to everybody: don't hitch your wagon to any one thing, right? That's just a good lesson for creatives in general. Yeah, that's why you ain't seen me in Barnes and Noble yet. Like you know, I, I get all I get all these offers all the time, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't fucking think so. I'm gonna tie me down. You, you self-publish, Kelby. You. For the most part, do you? We we pretty much um, like so the the model that like David and I have with Broken River, like it's his like Broken River is his uh, his baby, but uh, we you know it, it's sort of self publishing. It's like a band. It's like doing shit like a. Um, like a band would, you know. It's, I'll just be like, "Hey, I got this thing. Like this, this, this feels like a Broken River thing, right?" And gotcha. and you know, he'll he'll look at it and be like, "Yeah." And my I don't know. my whole thing, it, I mean, my whole thing with Broken River is that I like to put out books that I like, but I don't like to have any responsibility with the money at all. So what we kind of do is. Uh, uh, Kelby will send something my way. I usually send some light edits back to him, you know, some some suggestions of things to change, and then uh, we get the we get it all ready to go, and then he just kind of like it's self-publishing in the sense that he controls the the finances of it, right? Because that that just gets too complicated, and there's not enough money in it anyway to like for me to fuck with the headache, you know. So, so it's kind of a hybrid model i got it i got like i guess yeah i'm i'm when i say when i say self-published i guess i don't mean like you just uploaded it on amazon and kindle and and that's it what i mean is like you have the control yeah to write about what you want to write about yeah and yeah. and make the covers and the graphics the way you want it and yeah you're not limited by um by people telling you what you have to do yeah yeah i don't even know how i would yeah, react to like, that at this point what about you, Kelby? 
Nah, I, I would be like, no. Like, <laughs> there's, I've thought of the price point, because I've had actual offers, you know, and teases of offers of different things. And so I have thought about what would be my price point. And like, as long as, I'll never go exclusive, because I want to write like five books a year, and I want them to all drop whenever I want them to. But like, um, so I'd never go exclusive for any amount. But like, if you gave me $100,000 up front, and we're like, we want to change everything, though. I'd be like, go for it. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just, be, just, just burn that one. Just be like, okay, yeah. Um, another thing that I love about Sukamoto and his creative spirit. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about why people aren't out there making their own movies right now. Um, I know a lot of independent filmmakers, and they, they consistently struggle trying to go through something resembling a studio system kind of a similar process that writers go through with uh, the publishing industry where they're convinced that they need a certain budget because they have to do things like have craft service tables and you have to have crew that you you know are professional to get paid you know four hundred dollars a day or whatever it is so Sukamoto in Tetsuo 2 worked with a crew of 60 volunteers they were film students basically and they were doing it for the for the credit and uh y'all remember that scene at the beginning where they're kind of running through the the record shop he he contacted the record shop to get permission to shoot there and they said no and then he just he just did it anyway uh so i thought that was pretty funny like he just he didn't he didn't wait for them to uh he didn't wait for them to approve anything. He just kind of went ahead and did it. And then there's another scene where the main actors, one of the main actors has uh, all these blood squibs attached to him, right? So he's kind of like exploding. He's getting shot a lot. And uh, they didn't have a professional on set to actually build those squibs. So they built them themselves. And when they set them off, they didn't know if the explosion would actually kill the actor that they were attached to <laughs> jesus christ <Hey>, damn <laughs> so, and, they, and they just but they just kind of went for it so that you know making stuff that you want to make i'm not saying that it's responsible or even a good idea to uh you know i'll put people's lives in danger you know not pay people uh, definitely, you, you shouldn't care about permission to shoot anywhere because you could you should just shoot wherever the fuck you want. Um, but I do like this idea that Sukamoto just gets things done no matter what. Yeah, and you don't need permission if you don't ask. So that was like mistake number one. Right. <laughs> uh, I used to be like photography used to be my main thing, and. Um, I would shoot like surrealist photography, just get some friends and make them do terrible things like bury themselves or hold their breath underwater while I got a bunch of threw shit on top of them and get got some cool shots. And uh, I would like trespass onto construction sites often and shit like that. Just wherever looked cool, I'd be like, oh, we're shooting there. Art should be kind of dangerous, like, and it carries that air with it. Like, you can tell when something is just made in a warehouse studio, and when something was kind of dangerous. Like, it it has a certain vibe to it that's like, I don't, I don't know, it, it, it feels like, I don't think they had permission to do all this shit, you know? Yeah, it gives it a, a chaotic vibe, it gives it just, um, just like, like, dirtier, grittier. 
maybe that's why movies like Tetsuo 2 appear that way because it looks like there isn't permission because there isn't you know right right yeah no yeah it, yeah, it definitely has that spirit sense. right yeah no totally and right. so when the movie came out uh, basically people people walked out of the movie uh, and that was the first time that Tsukamoto had experienced walkouts in his in his films and he actually uh, he actually met do you know Gaspar No David the guy who made like Irreversible yes. and stuff so he, uh-huh. he met Gaspar No at this film festival and he was kind of down uh, in his feelings about the whole walkout thing and Gaspar No basically told him uh, yeah people do that that's just something that happens which makes sense <laughs> con- considering considering the movies that he made but um, basically after that movie was made Alejandro Hodorowsky, who did like uh, Holy Mountain and El Topo and stuff, he invited them all back to his house, right? And uh, Tsukamoto and them are hanging out, and Hodorowsky says, Hey, do you want to come see my meditation room? And Tsukamoto says, uh, Yeah, sure. And so he takes him to this room that's completely empty, except for a book that has photos of, uh, of corpses, of like dead bodies. And uh, Sukamoto said that that was a bit too heavy for him, but I thought that was kind of that was kind of funny. But oh, he's like, "That's where I draw the line." Yeah. Anyways, right, exactly. in this movie, I'm a blow up a baby. <laughs> Yo, that's exactly. Let's go blow up some kids. I am not good with what y'all are doing here. <laughs> Give me more gun fetish sex, and exploding children. 